two cheers of thanks here at the beginning of the podcast. We want to thank Brownie Davis, who drove down all the way from Minnesota to see us at the game convention. Really appreciate that. I wish I could have hung out a little bit more, uh, but I was sort of pinned to the booth. I want to say something really quickly. If, If you have not hung out with Brownie Davis... You're doing yourself a disservice. Yeah. Like legitimately spent a couple hours with the guy. One of the kindest, nicest people I've ever met. And he played party foul and he didn't tell me to my face that he hated it. So now we're best friends. <laughs> That's all it takes. Okay. Second he tier. Also knows how to build a flamethrower. So he's if there's an apocalypse, stay in your room. Jesus, he's just a man of many talents. Yeah. Uh, also want to thank uh, Adam, Laura, and little baby Limehouse, oh, that who Limehouse sent us is- a new board game to try called Hope City. We'll Fire. get to it as soon as we can. Also great. Yeah. So uh, thanks to both of you and cheers. Hey, everybody. I'm Caleb. I'm Spencer. And this is the Mix Six, where we have six conversations, drink six beers, rate them on a five-point scale, and occasionally have petty arguments about just nonsense. Just We're really just racing to the bottom of the barrel there. What is the most absurd thing we can petty bicker about? Petty arguments about not... For a long time, we debated about like what to put under the Mix Six podcast, and we landed on like beer, board games, pop culture, philosophy. We should have said petty arguments about nonsense. Yeah, yeah. Really, That's yeah. the... That's the best tagline we've ever not had. Yeah, and also might be like the subtitle to most of this year, at least on the internet. Yeah, yeah. like 2018. 100% about nonsense. Uh, so anyway, uh, we are here. Uh, we are going to drink some beer, and we're going to talk about some stuff, but we don't have much of a pre-party. So let's get straight into the rating system. This is all you, and I like the rating system. I like that you've avoided food, because that's clearly my domain as, mm-hmm. as the food expert. <laughs> yes, as the food expert. <laughs> right, that's exactly the, right. The resident gourmand. Yeah. The, the, the culinary you know, mouthpiece that yeah. I've become. Um, and what I what I like about this rating system is that you've dug deep. Typically, we kind of stay surface, you know, but you have really gone into the depths. Oh, no, yeah, this is not relatable. A universe. In any way. Absolutely not. Jump in there. Uh, so this is somewhat related to my fictional weapons in order of which I would be successful in wielding them. Uh, and I, along that, along those lines... Uh, as a person who typically likes to imagine physical exertion rather than actually doing it, uh, I did uh, fictional martial arts from the least to most desirable to master. It's a great idea. Uh, so a one is a martial art you do not want to master. It's not going to be particularly useful. A five is sign me up for classes down at the dojo today, mom and dad. Uh, so my number one, a martial art you would not want to get good at as a human being just like it's a beer you would not want to drink as a human being, is going to be uh, Metallicato, which is the martial art from Transformers. Why bother? That Transformers use on each other. So you might be very good at it, but you are not a giant six-story tall semi-truck monster thing. So I feel like it's application is going to be limited it's just for show you yeah. would, you would just know it so that you could tell people so I for this, this move turn your left hand into a tire right <laughs> right exactly yeah that's how useful I, I think shia labeouf could practice like for a long time and i still don't think it's going to help him in all well, he's those, out of the series those monster conflicts well marky mark for that instance who yeah. is generally a better physical specimen i don't think it particularly matters with metallicato which is why it's a one all right and a similar vein a two is going to be uh, Clue Core from Superman, Don't which is bother. the 
Kryptonian nerve pinch uh, sort of uh, pressure point technique. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which, but it's a Kryptonian martial art to be used by Kryptonians on other Kryptonians on Krypton. As a human, I'm fighting a Kryptonian, and so I'm already dead. Now, it does go up to a two, though, because I could perhaps be fighting Superman or Supergirl or someone who's not instantly going to punch their hand through me or laser eye me. Or, like, if you were under a yellow sun, for example, it under might be a, a useful... Thank you. Yeah, yeah, a red sun. It might be a useful tactic. <laughs> yeah, right? I yeah. Mean, yeah. Under a red Wait, sun, which perhaps. Which Superman was right. this? I don't remember this one. Uh, this is from the comics. Kukor oh, okay. is, is not from any film. Uh, I, but, I mean, you could also be fighting Henry Cavill, who has already murdered you, even though he is... And grown a beard. Technically <laughs> Superman, and grown a weird mustache. Uh, so, Klukor didn't stop any of that, as it should have, so not terribly useful not in martial art. Uh, so three, I'm going to go with Tal Shia from Star Trek. This is the, uh, this is the, you know, Spock Vulcan nerve pinch. Um, and that's, that's my speed. Like, as long as I don't move around too much, if I can just pinch you in the neck and you go to sleep, that's a, that's a Caleb Stokes level of exertion martial arts. I can handle that much. Uh, so four, it's going to be Venusian Aikido from Doctor Who. Now, this is equivalent of the doctor did it so it's the 70s the doctor was real punchy in the 70s and i've watched a lot of videos of venusian aikido once i learned what it was because i i admit I, I wasn't around for the original run near as i can tell it primarily involves smacking people while wearing a smoking jacket which seems just like a great martial art like uh you look great it's just slapping aliens i just want to do that like generally hugh hefner right. um i'm okay with that and then five, a, a fictional martial art you definitely want to become a master at, and a beer you definitely want to drink, is going to be Deja Fu from the Discworld series, in which people remember being punched and kicked by you mm-hmm. and have a deep sensation even though you're not doing it. It's brilliant. Yeah, which is definitely my kind of martial art. Uh, yes. Uh, I have a question. Where would Gun Kata uh, uh, appear in this list? Uh I mean, it's definitely down there near Metallicato. Really? Like, y- yes, because here's the thing. It's just pointing a gun really fast. Y- yes, very so true. You don't need But I said more. to master, which implies some form of practice was involved. <laughs> all right? So, deja vu, if I don't practice that well, you don't remember something and nothing yeah, really happened. But Gunkata, if I, you know, mess up between my white belt and my yellow belt test, I'm dead. Like, there's no, reco- there are not many masters of the Gunkata because, you know, they they can teach you to fall in judo. They can't teach you to take a bullet in Gunkata. You're not supposed to be hit by them. So I'm just saying, like, it seems real difficult. Good on Christian Bale and what is it, Tay Diggs? Who's the other one in there? I don't I know. Think so. yeah. For, for just, figuring yeah. that out because. There cannot there cannot be a crowded master's circle. Uh, All right. Yeah. All right. That's fair. All right. Okay. So with that rating system, which I think is unobjectionable and pretty brilliant, yeah. we're going to grab some beer and we'll be right back for Dissecting Our Fun. Hey, Spencer, what are you drinking? So... I don't actually know because this is not a helpful label, but I, I think <laughs> having pieced together the the clues I've been given, it's a Brow Brothers Brewing Company Sheephead. 
I cannot tell you the type of beer other than it says, better game, bitter beer. We'll fucking see. There's a lot of bees just so, so, all over that label. It's a, it is a hive of a label. He is drinking it. It is going down his throat. Um, it is bitter. That is a word that I would use to describe. <laughs> Starts that. with the B too, which seems to be the primary qualification. Actually, I kind of like it. Um, a lot of hops uh, in the middle. Uh, starts really light, gets really hoppy bitter, uh, and then mellows out like a nice ale, maybe even like a little bit of a red on the back end. I'm not totally sure. Uh, I'd give it a three. Uh, according to beeradvocate.com, it is an American IPA. Oh, okay, sure, I'll take yeah, that. That's an IPA. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a Talshaya from Star Trek. I think it doesn't yeah. bother me. Nothing, nothing is too offensive about it anyway. Um, and if push came to shove, I'd have another one and go, okay, yeah, that's a beer. Yeah. Um, hey, we're into dissecting our fun, Caleb. You, you've either made the best purchase or the worst purchase of your life. Mm-hmm. Um, we've talked about it a few times in passing on this podcast, but we've really reached a point. <clears throat> in some of our board gaming where <clears throat> theme be damned. I just want to sit down and do some math uh, with other people. <laughs> yeah. And, and luckily you've, you found that game in container. Yeah. And so we played it. It, it was all it was hyped up to be. And so now let's process what playing container was like and whether or not we'd recommend it. It's a sort of a recent theme in the podcast between this and Spider-Man. Uh, you might find a sort of subtle through line for the last months of episode. Yeah. Spencer and Caleb talking themselves into buying things they don't need. Yeah. Um, and boy, howdy, was that container because it is $100 or so. And uh, yeah, it is $100 for a short experience that I find definitely <laughs> to be worth it. But I don't know most other people will. Uh, and I completely understand if they don't. It um so here's the thing about container. You are literally manufacturing shipping containers. <laughs> You're not shipping things. I cannot underscore this enough. You're not shipping things in containers. You're making the containers. <laughs> That's the fucking game. Yeah. Now here's here's the real bit though. You're making the containers, but you actually don't get a whole lot of value out of the containers that you make. You have to create and share an economy of containers made by other people to generate your engine. Caleb, talk a little bit about the Which engine. is what honestly intrigued me about container, because right. uh, I've, I've read it elsewhere, and I, I think it to be true at this point, having played it. Uh, it is considered to be the most accurate uh, and compelling of economic simulations in games, uh, because while you are often simulating things against the board, the and the economy is being simulated by the board in the macro scale. Yeah. In container, the economy is almost entirely made of other players. That's right. So for instance, I can pay another player and then create a container on my board. Mm-hmm. But that is in my factory. That's right. From my factory, I cannot put my factory containers into my warehouse. I cannot do that. The only thing containers from my factory can go to is other people's warehouses. So if I want to put something in my warehouse, I have to buy something from another person at the table's factory. Once it's in my warehouse, I have to get it on a ship. And here's the thing. My ship cannot go to my warehouse. (laughs) I have to go to someone else's warehouse to put things on my ship. Then my ship needs to go to the island and sell that, of which there's an auction. So here's the thing. I can buy my own things off my own ship. But if I do that, I spend my money, and then it's just gone, which means that considering containers a closed system with other people, 
if I buy my own stuff, which is the only way to score the game, I obliterate money out of the economy. So if we all bid, and you know I really need that, and so everyone bids high, I have to go with the highest bid and match it. So if the highest bid is $8, I pay $8 to put it on my section of the island for it does for in-game scoring. And then that $8 is obliterated out of the economy. Yeah, let's it, let's pause and explain that a little bit, because I think that's one of the most interesting parts of the game. When you say closed system, what, what Caleb means here is that players start the game with a requisite amount of money, and then but for some random, not random, but for a few instances in which new game is, or new money is introduced into the game, the only money at the table is the money that you start with at the beginning of the game. Yeah. So if you're just spending your money on your stuff, it's not going to anyone else, which means they it's can't not spend, coming back to right, you. They yeah. can't spend more money on your stuff, which means there's no money floating around. <laughs> and in a game that simulates an economy, money needs to move. And so <laughs> yeah. for me, one you can of the literally most, cause your own recession. That's exactly right. So for me, one of the most interesting aspects of the game is it disincentivizes you from building things you need because then you have to pay for them. And when you pay for them, you don't trigger one of the few instances in which the outside world matches the money you've made from other people and introduces new money into the economy. But the compelling thing is, is that if you buy a shipment and bid on it and it's not on your ship, right? you pay that to the person who got the ship. Yeah. But then the person with the ship is also going to get a government subsidy. That's right. So if I buy stuff off your ship, I give you the eight money. And then you also get eight money from the bank, which and is that one of those invigorates rare more money into the economy. Exactly right. So the game really encourages to build the thing you do not want on your island, and incur and incentivizes other people to build the thing you want on your part of the right. island, so that you can simultaneously gain the most money for what you're giving to other players, right. while also refusing to crash the entire economy so everyone loses. Um, and I find it deeply compelling as a system. Um, they've also tightened some things up in the second edition, from what I understand. There's now an investment bank, so you can bring outside money into the system. That way are outside containers that weren't there originally. Let, let's talk. And about that the, is that is something to do so in case you don't want to play with someone who accidentally crashes the economy right. and you have to play a bunch of extra turns, um, which is interesting. Um, the scoring mechanic on the island there is super interesting, too, because whatever you have the most of, you have to throw away and score nothing because the market is flooded and it gets no money. So if you score purple containers at 10 points apiece... You cannot have purple containers be your number one commodity. You have got to stock up on some useless trash in there to make sure that that gets thrown overboard as being overmarked, saturated in the market to ensure that, like, you don't be like, I got six containers of purple in there. Be like, well, yeah, that's yep. three more than anything else you have. So now you got zero. Now you have zero. <laughs> Like, and there's a ton of so it's find it deeply interesting in that like it is competitive. You are trying to play people yeah. in terms of how you're setting your prices and seeing what people are doing. And I, I to be clear, I am bad at it. I am not good at container. I think I came in dead last. It wasn't uh, your best showing. Oh, and I, that. I don't care because right. I'm just so intrigued to watch it work. Yeah. Uh, but my my subtitle for this dissecting your fun is container, uh, aka why have I done this to myself? Right. Um, the art is, I, I would, I would describe it as, um, a Stalin-esque. Uh, yes, it is. It is. I would say, there, a, um, I, I would say abysmal if it was like not a, 
a series of pictures of boxes, right. in which case, you know, it can't be that offensive, but it is not great. Uh, it, not imagine great. That, that you Google Earthed a shipping yard and then you printed it out on a mm, printer. That's the board. Like, that's the whole board. <laughs> Satellite map? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Pretty yeah. much that. Yeah. 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 On, my, on like a, like a, oh, I found this printer in my basement. It's 10 years old, but it still has the some The island's okay. It's okay. Yeah. It's okay because it's blue and green. <laughs> yeah. And so it's like, and oh, it's look, color. Right, and there's color not contrast. a lot of that going around. But, but that being said, um, while I want to uh, uh, aggressively mock the component quality of the boards and, and their images. You cannot. Uh, mock the component the quality actual of the containers i was concerned as we were dropping them on my table to stack them that it was going to leave like long-term persistent to marks. say nothing of the ships right which is a, a murder weapon in my version of law and order yeah, absolutely someone gets stabbed to death with a ship container they are the heaviest duty resin plastic i have ever felt it's like two pounds a piece it was insane. that box is not light no i, I will be sure and here's and that's the thing, like, that's why the game is so expensive in the modern reprint. Yeah. I think I could have been really interested in the system of Recanter with, like, a cardboard disc. I put cardboard containers on. It would have been fine. It would have been fine. I, I would have been interested in it, and it could have been 30 bucks. Yeah. Like, but this, the component quality of this is obscene and connected with art that couldn't be more disparate. No. Like, there's so many questions I have about the people who reprinted this. Like, so many detailed questions about... Why'd you do this if you didn't later did this? Right, and right. it's just baffling. It is to a me. stunning juxtaposition of utility in that I think the boat would actually work as a boat if you needed it to, <laughs> but the map would not actually work as a map because it's that poorly printed. <laughs> yeah. Um I've got to say this. Like I was when you told me about the game, you were super excited and I was like, Yeah, it sounds interesting. And I've played plenty of economy simulators in the past. Um your explanation of the game was pretty good, and I'm like, man, that sounds like it could be a lot. And and in theory, it is a lot. I mean, you're setting your own prices. You're trying to figure out ways to inject new money into the economy. So there is a thriving passing around of dollars. You're trying to restrain yourself from just buying and buying and buying exclusively things you need because they'll get thrown overboard. Um, but, but given that you're managing all of that, one of the things that surprised me most is that turns play incredibly easily. Yes. You have it, two actions. They're very simple. If you take the investment bank out of it, it's like four possible actions. That's exactly right. It's even easier. Yeah. It moves swiftly. Even on our first play where we were occasionally consulting rule books and double checking things, I think we got through a round of it in an hour and a half. Yeah. But most of the time, players. most of the time we check the rule books, it, it, like you can sum up most of container in don't get high on your own supply. That's right. Like that's the primary rule of containers yeah if you made it you can't touch it right or if it's in your warehouse you can't ship it or if you shipped it you can't buy it like that's basically it yeah so i would say this if you've got a game group that is looking to step up their level of game mechanic nerdery like you you're past scythe you've played terraforming mars a bunch you've looked at concordia and you laugh in the face of tight mechanics and you're like what's next I would recommend if you can swing it, a hundred and a hundred and ten bucks is pretty. Or expensive. if a, an idiot friend makes a poor decision right. and buys it, right, and I, would like, and they will invite you over to play. There, I would recommend container weird, pretty heavily. Economic game, yeah. Like I, I was shocked at how much I enjoyed that game and how much I've thought about that game since we played it. I am weirded out by like the choices it made in terms of production and design. Yeah. But in terms of like raw game mechanics, it's one of the more interesting games I've ever played. Totally agree. And I'm glad you bring up Scythe because Scythe is a game where you'd be like, yeah, the components must look brilliant because it's a game about that. But like, 
what if one of the plain old boats from Container could literally shatter to pieces any little piece of plastic meant to represent a mech warrior, a right. silly mech warrior? What if you just dropped a container on it and shattered it to be that? It's just it's just baffling how yeah. it, the game was produced, uh, but it is. Uh, an amazing piece of game design that if, is worth checking out. If you need, uh, if you need a really nerdy, mechanically interesting game, and/or just more bricks or paperweights, <laughs> go buy Container. Yeah. Uh, and on that note, we're going to grab another beer. We'll be right back. Caleb, what is that? I am drinking from Kona Brewing Company, the pipeline uh, porter made with Hawaiian Kona coffee. I like a lot of those words. Mm-hmm. Um, I love me some coffee. Uh, I think I, I'm really starting to to be a porter fan more than it's I that used time to be. of year. Yeah, porters are better for seasonally. The I agree. Yeah. What are we thinking? It's probably a bit more smoke than. Um, the the growler we had before we started recording right, this, yeah. Uh, but I like it quite a bit. I think it's a four. Um, Ooh, I'm generally very impressed with Hawaiian beer, but it's like it is a dice roll, like because it, it really depends on how it travels mm. stateside for me. Sometimes you know, some, of, some of that label they they actually bottle it or they do it in Colorado. Yeah, this, yeah, it, yeah. And that re- actually, it really depends on yeah. on breweries other than Kona. It's just it really depends on what you're going for. Actually, um, Kona is now out of Portland. Washington, mm-hmm. New Hampshire, and yeah. Tennessee. Yeah, yeah, but I, I quite like that. It is, it is a very drinkable porter. Again, okay. not he- not too heavy, but uh, not not missing anything that you expect from a porter. And the coffee is subtle, which I need in a coffee theme. Sure, anything. So yeah. it's a porter that's a four, also known as a forder. Nice. I'll see myself out. Uh, Hey, we're into sports planer. <laughs> it's Venusian it, Aikido, according to the rating system <laughs> that right, I worked so you. very hard on. Thank you very much. Yes, it's well, a good okay. okay. Um, sports planer was tied for our number one vote getter. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of a lengthy explanation here from Chris Keener, um, but but kind of the gist of it is. Um, Chris is new to football. Christopher is one of the 10 or 11 people playing in the mixed six uh, fantasy football uh, group. And we're having a lot of fun. Very active group me. Really enjoying the conversation. Oh, by the way, I was gaming with Jason last night. Yeah. And he said he needed to kick your ass. And yeah. he, he meant in the context of fantasy football. Right. But all of us at the table thought literally. And we all looked like, well, I mean, that's obviously easily accomplished <laughs> yeah. have you seen that man you know why you told us but right. i mean you can do it right sure uh, yeah. observe other things it, it is airy outside um but so chris has uh, chris and a lot of people maddie for example jeb uh are kind of like encountering the nfl in really intentional ways for the first times and for maddie it's very difficult because i don't know if you know this she doesn't live here um so the time is very different But he's new to the NFL. So he says, you know, it seems to me as someone who didn't watch pro football before this, the NFL is pretty terrible at attracting and retaining new fans. He gives a couple of examples. They only broadcast certain games each week unless you buy premium TV channels and Mm -hmm. seem to have little regard for home team media markets. They have rules about cutting away from overtime games if another game's starting soon. So how do you see the NFL as a business organization? (laughs) <laughs> Aside from all of the poorly handled kneeling controversies, domestic abuse problems, and concussions, and how could they be better attracting and retaining fans? 
And that is an interesting question because the yeah, NFL... If you, if you cut out the atrocious politics of the NFL right. as a business practice, it is very interesting to look at everything else and see what's going on. Yeah, I'm intrigued about your opinion. Be a business if it wasn't so heavily subsidized, at least like the stadium side of it and that kind of thing? Uh, uh, some of, History might say no in some ways, right? Yeah. So you look at some of like the XFL, the AFL, right? Uh, things that haven't lasted or things that barely last. Well, as Container has taught me, if you could get a government government subsidy take it you should get it you should definitely not buy your <laughs> well, own. i mean i understand their motives <laughs> right. yeah um so, so there's no question that that the subsidizing helps you know for example the oakland raiders are moving to las vegas in two seasons and as i understand it a, a large amount of the cost of that stadium will be built at the taxpayer expense um and you know the st louis rams now the los angeles rams left the city because taxpayers wouldn't fork over a bunch of money to build a new stadium when, you know, frankly, the Rams had been so bad that no one wanted to use the existing stadium anyways. And you know? and building that stadium in St. Louis would have been an economic disaster. That's right. Uh, equivalent to a meteor strike or even worse, an Olympics. That, being that, that, yeah, that's, exa- <laughs> that's exactly right. Um, so. So um, no, you you cannot ignore the the subsidizing of the NFL and, and the NFL's properties very literally. Um, that being said, I mean I, you know I don't think that makes it a disqualifier as a business. You know most of our industries are, industries are at this point subsidized. I mean Jeff Bezos is subsidized. I mean that's kind of you know the nature of it. Um, so as a business operation. What do I think of the NFL? Well, the math would tell you that as a business operation, the NFL is doing a great job, right? Um, even with declines in viewership, and some evidence will tell you that viewership was down about 10% over the last year. There are some arguments around why viewership was down. Some people will tell you it's because of the Kaepernick thing, um, you know, that your your diehard Americans or, or supporters of the military who have, in my opinion, misinterpreted Kaepernick's protests greatly um, are unwilling to watch a league where that was tolerated for so long. Some people will tell you that um, a lot of people no longer watch the NFL uh, because of concussions and injuries. Some people don't watch the NFL because of their politics. Some people don't watch the NFL because a lot of millennials just don't watch cable anymore. I mean, the, the reality or is... Or sports. Right, exactly. Yeah. I mean, if it's not a streaming show I, I don't on think a platform... Ba- I don't think baseball or soccer or anything's like going up in right, the U.S., right? Right, yeah. right exactly. Um, other I data... remember when we were kids, when if you wanted to see a movie... It was about a child sports team. Like, oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. 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 That's not a thing anymore. No. Other data will tell you, though, that while viewership is questionably down for a variety of potential reasons, um, there's been a 4.9% increase in national revenues. There's a great piece uh, on Deadspin from Chris Thompson uh, in July of this year where he details a couple of different reports, primarily from Darren Rovell of ESPN, where the NFL distributed more than $8 billion via their revenue sharing program in 2017, which is a significant increase in national revenues. Is that with players? Uh, yeah, so the, the NFL has a revenue-sharing model whereby teams get distributed out and then players, as part of the players' bargain, also kind of get a piece of that pie. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my limited understanding of the players' deal and the bargains are that players don't get nearly enough of this, and a lot of it goes back to the owners' teams kind of writ large. Yeah. But someone smarter than I can 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 kind of run that down. Um, you, you don't need to. I know how money works. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, so, so that being said, as the NFL has added nights, Thursday night, occasional Saturday night games now, they are always on Sunday, and then Monday nights, um, even when viewership is down, uh, I think 
last week the the Patriots and the Colts played in a Thursday night game and in the past couple of years that would dominate most television markets largely because Tom Brady and Peyton Manning was one of the biggest draws on television for a long time mm-hmm. the Colts have been so bad over the last couple of years and even with the resurgence of Andrew Luck it's uninteresting and the Patriots have been so dominant that that game was down I think like 13% in viewership in most major markets and yet it was still the most watched thing on television across a lot of platforms so, oh, so it might also be television viewership yeah, dying. Yeah, that's way. exactly right. And and, and I, I think part of the part of the problem here in saying the NFL is down and, and therefore it's not doing well is yeah, the NFL is down, but the NFL was so far ahead that being down still puts them comfortably in first place in a lot of viewing markets, mm-hmm. as it were, because they were always the biggest thing on television for a decade. Um, as a business organization, what do I think of the NFL? <clears throat> I think my primary issue, and not not to quibble with the Chris's question more than the the topic, but you know when Chris says, aside from all of the poorly handled kneeling controversies, domestic abuse problems, and concussions, my problem is that that has that is the business of the NFL anymore. That yeah, Roger Goodell's primary job in in and he's the commissioner of the National Football League, you know, is is like one of two or three things for me. Um, it's being uh, the the face of a league. That is often called into question on its moral uh, authority. Corella Deville is less openly evil than Roger Goodell. Right, but right. So, so we don't. If hear he from- came out in a suit made of puppies, right. I would say, "Way to tone it down, Roger." Yeah, exactly. I'm right? glad you're, you know, meeting us halfway. Yeah, yeah. But like dying, not dead, but dying puppies. <laughs> yeah. And still, we'd be like, "Well, I mean, um, <clears throat> we don't see Roger Goodell anymore unless it's the NFL draft or." the league has screwed up a punishment or sanctioning issue for a player who's been convicted of or suspected of domestic abuse and the team or the league writ large hasn't done enough to respond to that, then Goodell shows up. So, you know, his primary roles are respond to lapses. Bad guy. In, yeah, yeah, bad guy. Respond to lapses in moral judgment or character or, or just being a good human. Um, to talk about the NFL's fundraising efforts for the troops, for cancer awareness, et cetera, et cetera. But of course, even over the last couple of years, they've been absolutely raked over the coals about their support of veterans and the military because, uh, you know, a lot of people did those exposés in 2015, 2016, I think, where they were showing how much money the NFL was charging the military and the American Cancer Society to put their stuff on NFL things as compared to the amount of money they were giving back. So either push more Moral issues, which they're failing on, push, uh, you know, benevolence issues, which they're failing on, or to talk about rules issues in the past couple of months. So the NFL made drastic changes, example, to ex- for example, um, to quarterback safety, to you know, protect quarterbacks from concussions, to kickoffs, to protect players from injury and concussions, and all that's really done is create a lot of tension around what is and is not a penalty, what is and is not a catch, what is and is not an appropriate play anymore. And so Goodell spends some time on public television, national television, talking about why they've made rules changes that have made the game, frankly, less interesting, have created unnecessary penalties, have flipped games because of bad calls, which aren't bad calls. They're enforcing the rules, but they're bad ideas for player safety. So as a business unit, that's what the NFL does now. They rake in a bunch of money, and then they spend their time hedging against people who are unhappy with the product on the field or the products off the field. Yeah, um, because it you know it, it employs a bunch of people who are some of whom do not do good things very publicly, uh, and then the NFL has to respond to it. So 
<clears throat> it's hard for me to argue with them. It, it, it's a juggernaut. Um, Roger Goodell is a millionaire. All of the owners are millionaires. Teams are selling for billions of dollars, you know, the highest dollar values of all time. Um, and they're distributing more wealth than ever. That being said, I can comfortably look at all of it and go, yeah, but I don't really like what they're doing about it. But that doesn't change the fact that it works. And so I, I, maybe that's not a good answer. But I mean, that's... I mean, it's okay. I often wonder if the, you know, just staggering tone deafness uh, and political nonsense put out by the NFL. Oh, like, yeah. Yeah, we're not a political here. We're just playing a game the gay, you know, F-15 flyby. Right. You know, like, right. nothing political here. Yeah. National anthem to start the game. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, like, uh, I, I often wonder if that is not an intentional marketing tactic that gets a a base more stoked up than than they would be otherwise about a game. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, with a sort of nationalist fervor about something. But um, I, I don't have an alternative thing to compare that to. I don't have numbers pre the NFL doing horrific things because God knows that has been going on for a number of years. Oh, yeah. I've forgotten that time. Yeah, 100%. Uh, so do you think the NFL is going to keep on its current path then? Like more or less stay the course as it is? Yeah, for the most part. I actually think yeah. that the the one of the things the organization has done is the organization has started to like, so for example, you can stream your Thursday night games on Amazon prime now. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're opening up, uh, you know, they are asking for you to purchase NFL primetime packages or premium television packages, mm -hmm. and they're available on PlayStation view and streaming services. I mean, I'll say this. It seems like that, you know, they're not letting the tail wag the dog too much on these things and are getting out in front of the mm -hmm. fact that, that, a lot of our media viewing habits are changing. And I, okay. I I think that at a minimum, that probably makes them at least this successful over the long run. Do you think so? Do you think they're still going to be in the same? They're still going to be number one in 10 years? Um, no. Okay. I don't. I, don't. Um, I, I think that uh, <clears throat> if they can't figure out the injury thing, I, what what is kind of more interesting in this conversation to me about the success of the NFL isn't necessarily that that organization as a business entity over 10 years as it is looking at the data on the decline in the number of kids playing youth football, um, uh, yeah. flag football, a demographic thing that, that to me is the more leading indicator of where I think the NFL. I'm fine to watch these up. gladiators kill themselves. Right. I'm no longer keen to train my child to be a gladiator. Yeah. It turns out it's not healthy. Right. I, I, I think, I think that as our generation continues to age and has more kids and certainly the generation after us, and we're much more aware of the physical. And have less kids in right. addition to that, too. Right, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are much more aware of the physical risks of playing football, of hitting of hitting each other in the head. <laughs> um, I, I think that, that the, the player base will erode over time. And I think that's, or, or interest in the sport generally will erode, in the same way that I think boxing, you know, mm -hmm. uh, that it only took, it only took a couple of, of, of examples of us seeing our national boxing heroes, you know, who could not talk anymore for us to be like, that seems like a very violent sport. And maybe that's not for us in the future. Um, so I think that while the N NFL, so is we'll just move them on over to UFC right. because they're all too young and right. we don't exactly, we don't see Chuck Liddell crap in his pants yet. Right. Like, right. Yeah. So I think whereas <laughs> the NFL is, w will run its course for a while by expanding into other viewing markets and finding itself in other platforms, which is smart. Um, I think long-term, 
um, yeah, we've learned enough to know that this isn't sustainable. I mean, I think the game will have to fundamentally change. And then the people who are the ones watching the game, like diehards, won't, won't be interested in that game anymore. So, no, I, I don't think in 10 years we'll be talking about the same thing. Right. You heard your first. XFL is the future. Vince McMahon is going <laughs> to save us. He's got it. Uh, XFL forever. And with that, I need another beer. Spencer, what are you drinking? So this is from the Fulton Brewery in Minneapolis, I believe. Uh, this is the War in Peace Imperial Coffee Stout. So just all the all the heavy beers. Yeah, get in there. Ooh, that's a good smell. A good smell. I like that scent. Good on the nose. Let's see if it holds up as he yep. drinks it. We wait <laughs> in anticipation. No, no bad faces in this. It's no, that's very good. Yeah, let me get in there. Um, that's a four for me. Which is, I believe, without looking at my notes, Venusian Aikido. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Slapping a man in a smoking jacket. That's exa- and that's exactly Ooh. what that beer does. God, that feels like it, too. That beer put on Sort of a, pepped up with some coffee and right, slap. A velvet red, knee-length, very comfortable jacket, mm-hmm. and just backhanded Daily off the Daily come face. at you. That's slap. Right. Don't Get need out of here, Daily. That's very drinkable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and for an Imperial Coffee Stout, it doesn't feel too heavy. It's got some lightness to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I, li- I like this beer. What are we talking about? Uh, we're going to do Com Corner, which was tied Holla. for the number one vote-getter. Yeah. Everyone wants to hear what Spencer has to say today. I got thoughts. I got thoughts. Uh, so this one comes from Benji, who suggests Com Corner about how philosophy informs rhetoric or something like that. Best prompt. Points for being noncommittal, Benji. Yeah, I, like, I like that you didn't try too hard. Yeah. That's nice. Yeah. Keep cool. Like, eh. Personal taste. He typed that with like a cigarette in his mouth, uh-huh. and he just like nah, he didn't even finish it. I think I probably added the ellipses. He was on a smoke break. He, yeah, he didn't like, need it. Yeah. Yeah. It was yeah. a John, a real John McClane moment. Yeah, like, I don't know. <laughs> Do this, assholes. <laughs> um, <clears throat> yeah. So we've talked about this a little bit in the past, and I've never. <clears throat> Uh, to be clear, I always want Thad Stoklasa sitting here doing this with us, mm-hmm. but I probably never wanted Thad here more than when I saw this prompt. Yeah, you know, talking about how philosophy informs rhetoric. Um, I think I've said this on on, on previous segments, um, but a lot of my degree, which is you know communication studies with an emphasis in in, in rhetoric or rhetorical studies, w- w- there were a lot of philosophy classes. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, agency and postmodernity. You know, I was reading a bunch of stuff that was not theoretically a com book, but it was kind of a nature of being book. And I, you know, it just so happens that the nature and if of, you exist, you might want to try and communicate. Well, I mean, you know, that's, that, that's kind of the part of it that when you accept the pre- premise that <clears throat> at its core, being human is communicating, mm-hmm. you know, then there's a lot on the table that you can talk about, but you know, not just agency and postmodernity. I mean, um, you know, the, the Burke seminars that I was taking, you know, I spent a lot of time reading Michelle Foucault and William Barrett and Suzanne Langer. Um, <clears throat> These are not necessarily people who are writing about rhetoric, per se. I mean, Burke certainly is, and Langer certainly is. But they're writing about a lot of things, philosoph- philosophical or otherwise, mm-hmm. and rhetoric is a part of that conversation. So um, I also think that this is, you know, some distinction in the degrees that that you and I have, that a lot of times people will conflate an English degree with a rhetoric degree. Um, and these things are different, uh, you know. And, quite so. <clears throat> quite so. But but they're covering similar topics just from very different perspectives. Yeah. And, and the perspective of rhetoric is, in, in a lot of instances, very philosophical. So how does philosophy inform rhetoric? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, I would say the primary way in which philosophy, 
the study of, informs rhetoric, um, is, you know, lies for me in, in the heart of what it means to practice rhetoric. So if rhetoric is, you know, Burke always talked about it as like the moving of the will, right? yeah. the, the use of symbols to induce someone to change how they think, feel, behave, believe, act. Um, then really at its core, what you're, what you're talking about there is, is what motivates people, what makes people feel most human, what makes them feel transcendent, what makes them feel bad, what are their positive and negative valences. And the philosophy of that person is naturally going to inform That's exactly what right. that means. Yeah. yeah, so how they feel about a thing, how they interact with a thing, their approach more generally to life, to values, um, all, all of which are, I think, fair questions philosophically, are also questions rhetorically, which is why when you read the grammar of motives or the rhetoric of motives, uh, uh, language is symbolic action. What you're really reading about then is a way of understanding how our different philosophies can combine, can be used rhetorically, manipulatively, uh, um, maybe not manipulatively even, tangibly, to move one another in places. So uh, Burke's assessment of the rhetoric in the rhetoric of Hitler's battle in which he diagnoses Mein Kampf and, and makes an argument that if you read Mein Kampf and you didn't see at its premise the, the the philosophy, the essence of the thing, and then its tangible manifestation, you missed the boat be, because he outlines clearly here, not a position, but a philosophy, a perspective, a belief system. Uh, and, and then you that know, within that corrupt belief system logically leads. That's exactly to, right. Right. You know, nightmarish right. actuality. So yeah. then intellectually and in, intellectually speaking, right. If we run that thing out, where do we end up? Well, we end up with, you know, with the Holocaust. And so, um, so for me, the, the interesting relationship between these two things, I, I told my uncle this some years ago that, you know, my degree was really a philosophy degree for 50% of it. And he thought, well, that's bullshit. And it's not because the interesting thing for me is, is when you're talking about rhetoric at a really fundamental level, what you're talking about is what, what makes up a human, uh, and, and not biologically, but philosophically, their value systems, their belief systems, their needs, wants, desires, their perspectives. Uh, and then how do you bend, influence, manipulate, identify, all of those words can be good or bad, those issues to move them in a direction. And so for me, that's the clearest explanation. Uh, I don't know your perspective on this. Um, yeah, I, I would completely agree that philosophy sort of entirely informs rhetoric. Yeah. Um, and, you know, as a weird leftist, uh, I would argue that a, a lot of our problems on the left come from a place of um, seeking ideological purity before we seek persuasion mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. instead of trying to make an argument where ideologically uh, we meet on some praxis together. Sure. Though our ideology is completely different. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, th I think lots of the times we're trying to get people over to the ideology immediately, and it yeah. seems cart before the horse. Yeah. Um, so, like, uh, I'll, I'll use an historical example, not because it's better, but it's the example I'm talking about in terms of the, the very serious issues of the left. But, like, I, I think there were people in the South who could have been convinced by slavery is a shitty economic model. Mm. They're not going to work as hard if you don't pay them. Uh, they are miserable. They will get away with whatever they can because you've made them miserable in their entire life. And why wouldn't they? And also, you're keeping an enormous amount of, you know, the white people you so claim to love out of work, underemployed from things that they could be doing and could be innovating on. And it's just a crappy ass economic model. I think I don't I still think the Civil War happens, mm -hmm. but I think there's some people that you could have swayed from that earlier <laughs> than, you know, Quaker abolition. Now, is the ideology of the Quaker abolition, this is a morally repugnant and awful thing? 
Yes. Yes. Obviously, that's the reason you should be making the argument. Obviously, that's the case. But in terms of rhetorical praxis, in terms right. of rhetorical utility, maybe you just talk about Haiti to those people mm-hmm. and be like, you only got to slip up once and then your head's work. on a stick waiting for Napoleon to find you on the beach. Like, mm-hmm. um, you know, that that's going to, you know, if I'm a preacher of cure, pure venal fear, maybe that moves the the needle more towards something where we have a movement of will in terms of praxis faster than a musket uh, will have to do it. But yeah. yeah, ultimately, that's where they are. And I see a lot of that today in the... You know, and stuff like uh, the modern debate. So, like the Kavanaugh nonsense. Like the the argument is like, have you no decency, sir? That I see repeated instantly on TV. Of course they don't. Mm-hmm. Like, no, right? right. <laughs> of course they don't have decency. That's the first that, premise. That, <laughs> yeah. So why are you trying to move the needle on that one? Like, yeah. why are you not trying to move? And then I see stuff like the perjury angle and like, well, now you're assuming they're arguing in good faith. Like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. we can see the, we can see the ideology here. Yeah. Like we can see the ideology there. And I just, I just wish we would try to move the, move the framing around a little bit more philosophically to try and reach these people that you might need to reach. I, I don't think it's going to happen that way. No. Um, and ultimately it, I'm saying this is a cis white dude. So like ultimately I, could very well be shouted down and rightfully so to say i don't deserve and like you don't deserve to have that moved your way like yeah like because that is you know there's an objective truth in the world we need to acknowledge that this is you know evil and bad and i get that like Mm -hmm. and and i understand that but i I often do all my twitter feed is like have you no decency how could you do this sir and i'm just like because it's been years at this point. Right. Obviously, they can do this. Like yeah. they, they don't think you're human. Decency like, is not the discourse we need anymore. Yeah, yeah. We're like, past that. Yeah, you don't share the philosophy. So, like, meet them mm. on their philosophy and make an argument there. Yeah. Like, yeah, which is, I think, what they want more than anything else. Like, um, mm-hmm. and it's not that you have to give up your ideology to do that. You know? No, 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 no. no. I, and I, I think that's a good distinction. That that while I think these two things are, uh, you know. It, interwoven such that you cannot separate them. I I do think it is important to know that you can have an ideological and a rhetorical position that are different. Um, And and I think that that's because you can detach. I think you can recognize the, the potential effectiveness of an argument and then make a determination about whether or not it fits into your philosophical system of truth. Yeah. Um, And then all you have to do is figure out what's more important to you there. Um, for me, those things are more compelling when they're part of the same system and sing from the same sheet of music. Uh, but that's not always the case, nor does it always work, right? And so I think there's a, there's kind of a question of taxonomy definition, how are these two things related? And there's a question of effectiveness. And yeah. that's really what you're talking about. Yeah. And it may not always be effective for your philosophy and your rhetoric to be aligned. That doesn't mean the rhetoric can't be effective in and of itself. Yeah. So, yeah, interesting question. Um, if you're uh, really interested in running this down, you know, I'd suggest anything by, not anything by Burke, but a lot of Burke's <laughs> stuff. Um, Beach read. Right, yeah. <laughs> Take know. it to the laundromat. Yeah, uh, like probably uh, the flo- now the permanence and change, maybe. Uh, Attitudes Toward History would be a really, really good, really, really good read. Um, Ernst Kassir has a lot of great stuff, too, that, that I think could be helpful here. Um, and then Stephen Toolman has a really practical approach to the relationship between philosophy and rhetoric, and he's kind of one of our greatest argumentation scholars of the 20th century. He's got some really cool stuff on the relationship, the logical relationship between these things and how they get meted out in the terms of discourse. Um, so check those things out. Thanks so much for the question. On that note, we're going to get Caleb a beer, and we'll be right back. 
Caleb, what's that? I am going to drink from August Shell Brewing Company's the Shell's Dark from New Ulm, Minnesota. I'm going to guess this is a brownie beer. Not that there's brownies in it, but that brownie brought it to us. I understand (laughs) in retrospect how that might be. Though, if you have a brownie beer, send that shit my way. (laughs) I'd drink that. I wonder if that is a thing. I mean, you would think with all the types out there. Spencer? Oh, yeah. yeah, Definitely. There's not a question. (laughs) Eh, It's a three. Okay. There's nothing objectionable about that. Yeah. It's middle of the road. That's a Talshaya. That's where we that's where we net out a lot anymore. If you had that to drink, I'd drink it. It is one. average. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, that is literally the middle of the road. Hey, it's a fire sale. Fire sale. Ask Mick Six. Here we go. You're gonna ask me the questions highlighted in red. I'm gonna ask you the questions highlighted in blue. Fine with me. Let's do it. the other way around. No. I didn't really pick them out. Here we I go. Just kind of alternated. All right. Jeb asks, I'm behind on my movies and recently watched Upgrade and Tau. What are your thoughts on the current genre uh, or direction of movies that lean towards cyberpunk transhuman side of sci-fi? What are your likes, dislikes of the genre? What would you change for future movies and shows? Generally for this, typically like the action scenes more than in many other instances, and I'm always interested to see the interesting takes on the tech that smart people have in movies and television when it comes to science fiction. I'm so excited. Um, what would I change for future movies or shows? I, I understand um, that these are dystopian settings for a purpose. Hot damn, if we couldn't just make the colors a little bit lighter because it gets hard to see some of the action on my television in these terribly dark, depressing sequences. Yeah, I, I like them a lot just because that's more my speed, but I do think that we've lost the ability to imagine a future other than a cyberpunk transhuman dystopia. Right. I, I'm, I keep reminded of that comic that you see online of the cyberpunk guy shooting bullets of like the cyberpunk message over a dude and yeah. the dude's like cool future um we're there yeah. like we're there now yeah. that's just the way we live um, uh ben h asks during the development of party foul how did you deal with creative differences or conflict without messing up your friendship and making sure the game was good all conflicts were determined in a pit we dug in the back of spencer's yard exactly we would right. tie our hands together yep. with a belt so yep. that we could not break and then we engaged in the rite of Shemya Ra, uh, which is very dangerous and not to be recommended. But Does it involve Bowie knives? Yeah. Uh, it's a trial by combat. The scars are deep, but thankfully we got along pretty well. Actually, no, we just kind of hashed it out. Just keep talking. They're, like, Open up a group me channel. And just keep talking until you figure it out. There are actually like, very few creative conflicts, per se. Partially, yeah. I think, because I was happy to let you take the creative lead on much of this because you've developed a bunch of games in the past. And unless you said something that was just bonkers to me, I was like, yeah, let's give it a shot. And generally it worked. So yeah. yeah, good news. As a corollary, I would not start a collaborative project with someone who is not willing to compromise on things. Oh, 100%. It. Yeah, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. Be, yeah, know your collaborators before you engage on a big project. Word, like word, that. Word. Yep. Uh, you're up next. Yep. You ask me. Oh, I asked you? Yeah, you asked me. Red, I didn't ask I asked you that you one. Blue. Damn, I answered that question. Damn, Damn. girl. Uh, anyway, Cassidy asked. How the fuck is a person supposed to figure out what to do with their life? Man, I wish I had a good answer to this. Um, so, so let me say this. Um, I think it, as someone who went through this very deeply and did not do a good job with it, what am I supposed to be doing? These kind of like larger questions about purpose, etc. One thing that helped me is I stopped thinking about what is my purpose in life, even though I think I kind of landed there. What is my purpose in life? And instead, I asked myself, in what environments can I thrive? 
And I started looking for those environments, which were exciting, which were activating, which were enthusing. And when I was surrounded by good energy and I felt like I was creating good energy, it was much easier to identify what I thought my purpose or what I was supposed to be doing was. That's sort of my thoughts on the issue. I used to advise college students specifically on picking majors when I was in graduate school. And some of them would come in utterly crippled by the thought of it and utterly crippled about it far too long. Um, and in my desperation to help them one day, I just started like listing off things off the major list and like, well, not that one. And then I'm like, well, maybe just start there. Right. What aren't you going to do? Because yeah. you're crippled by a bunch of indecision. I understand it might be a list of things that you want to do, mm-hmm. but I'm betting the list of things you don't want to do is way, 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 way longer. Yeah. And maybe the progress of even being like, don't want to work at a tannery. Mm-hmm. Mark that off the list. Mm-hmm. Like maybe, maybe the progress of that is going to be, you know, enough to give you a sense of progress. And that's perhaps what you need. Yeah. Um, so at least limit the field. You know what I mean? Yeah. Totally. Uh, focus on the negative for a bit so you can get back to the positive. Uh, Stephen Lee asks, do you feel any conflicts with using Facebook for the mixed six and your other projects given its problematic nature? I'm not judging, just curious, given that I'm sure you've thought about this matter. Uh, yes, I do feel some conflicts. I'm not wild about Facebook. Um, I appreciate the lack of judgment and I would expect nothing less of a, of a solid person like Stephen Lee. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, what else can we do? I've thought about getting off Twitter a number of times and then I thought, and, and how would I interact with a lot of people that I interact with for this very purpose? And how would I promote this podcast right. or yeah. discuss it or do so, Jerry ever beer? So. Yeah, I'm with you on that. Totally hear you. Yes. I shouldn't have an iPhone either because it has rare earth metals in it, but here I am mm-hmm. needing to make phone calls. Here we in are. In 2018. So, <laughs> yeah. You're asking me. Uh, this is a long one. So Benji asks with a long antidote about uh, mistakenly uh, misgendering a person who would prefer to be gendered as a non-gendered they mm-hmm. in reference to dogs uh, being typically better with a person of a sex or another. I'm not going to read the whole anecdote, uh, but Benji is see- seemingly agonizing over um, a mistake a, a mistake, and uh, apologizing for it. So if it is brought up, certainly you should apologize for it. If yep. you felt the need to reference it to us, certainly you are already feeling bad about it and yep. that you want to make a change in the future. However, I wouldn't bring it up if the person is absolutely cool with it and hanging out with you on the regular as it appears from the anecdote. Yeah. That would just make things weird. Right. I, um, I think it's totally okay in the moment when if it becomes weird to apologize, lay bare your mistake, explain what happened, and ask how to proceed in the future so that the terms are clear and so you know exactly what the preference is. And I, I would think that if they're friends, they're going to give you the grace to understand, you know, th- th- this issue. But I, I, I mean, you're already making an attempt to change and it's not an issue. So right. don't overcorrect. Yeah. yeah. Turtle asks if you could plan any five Google searches into a hypothetical romantic rivals search history to be discovered by your mutual love interest. What would they be and when would they be discovered? Uh, we're just going to do one Google search. Yeah. Uh, mine would be over something. I don't know the exact wording of it. Something regarding cell phone tracking. Mm. You want it to be subtle. Or, <clears throat> I mean, you're, you're obviously a Shakespearean Machiavell if you're doing this shit and yeah. you're a terrible person. But assuming that, you want to be at least good at being a terrible person. Sure. And like being like, how to dissolve a body in acid. Well, that's just too on the nose. Yeah. That's going to be right in the court case. You're just... Well, now I'm not only married to a criminal, but a shitty one. Like, mm-hmm. but like, mm, how do I hide my cell phone GPS from this location or something oddly specific? Yeah, that 
that and the person's gonna be like i don't know what you're talking about because they don't because you right. planted it on there right that is a seed of doubt that's going to grow wow. and bloom into uh, a sort of machiavellian dramatic takedown Good that you're Lord. obviously looking for if you're this sort of Aaron from titus andronicus this is deep. in the modern day yeah My goodness. you don't want to overplay your hand to destroy this relationship Good so. lord okay wow I got nothing after that. I mean, I, I was just going to say Donald Trump, um, but yeah, yours is way better. Yeah, uh-huh. uh, you could just say uh, alternate select Jason furry conventions near me. <laughs> hey, maybe that's their thing, Ross. Well, I think these are all great answers. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> I mean, assuming it's a non-furry relationship, obviously. But. Yeah. Do you have a favorite Shakespeare play? Uh, Midsummer's Night, Midsummer Night's Dream. Oh, you're a comedies man. I really, uh, I don't know why. After all these years, that one's stuck with me. It's the, I mean, it's the American Pie of Shakespeare. You I, should, yeah, you no, like I, it. yeah, I think that's it. It's great. I, I've always found the character of Puck to be interesting, entertaining, and fun. And everywhere yeah. I go, I'm like, oh, there's the Puck. Okay, cool, great. Sort of mischievous, but not very good at it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Q or Quentin asks, how do you explain rules to people who enjoy playing games but hate or react badly to rules being explained to them? Assuming they are unwilling to learn the rules themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't. Play with better people. <laughs> it's a board game. It exists as a concept of rules. <laughs> if they get angry at you when you explain the rules to them, and by that means you took the time to learn the game so you didn't have to read the rule book aloud to right. them, yeah. and so they explicitly catered an experience for you and they get pissed about it. Shut it down. Yeah, find somewhere else. Right. That Cause, sounds cause awful. Because the alternative is they violate the rules and you don't explain it to them, and now you're not playing the game, or... You're making an, assum- an assumption that they can't play the game correctly. Neither neither of those is a good alternative either. So Yeah, get out. Pull the ripcord. Uh, what are some things you've learned about yourself after being in a relationship? What didn't uh, you know uh, that you wish you had someone mention to you? That's from Scott Henderson. Uh, things I learned about myself. I, even though I feel like I'm almost always right... Um, the important thing is not always being right and your attitude should adjust accordingly. Um, I also need time where I'm not talking or where I can be kind of alone and quiet in order to be a good partner to someone. So sometimes my version of being the best partner to Brandy is taking a little time before I'm a really good partner to Brandy because I need to recharge. Um, and, you just have to go with the flow on some shit that doesn't make sense to you. And people warned me about that. You know, they're like, look, sometimes shit just happens and you're like, what the fuck is even going on? And you'll get nowhere raising cane around that stuff. Mm -hmm. You just, okay, all right, that's what we're dealing with now. So let's effectively deal with it. Also, you don't have to solve every problem. Mm -hmm. Um, Frederick, Frederick asks for the communist. I assume he means you. Um, When will the revolution come? Uh, well, the naked psychopathic ambitions of the bourgeoisie and ruling classes couldn't be more laid bare right now. But the fact of the matter is, is that we are too comfortable. Yeah. Uh, it's going to come when the climate change comes. And I can pretty much assure you that. When, so 10 years. Yep. Mm-hmm. So the, right. uh, when the material conditions get uncomfortable and there is a stark paradigm shift and everyone realizes, oh shit, better be woke or die. It'll probably be too late. But. There'll be lots of blood on the streets, uh, so hey, hey, buy your Murray's. Anyway, uh, Maddie says, gift giving is a thing some people love to do, and for others, it's seen as equivalent exchange and obligation. What is the line motivation that causes this separation? For some people, we've talked about love languages. It's just not their love language, and I think that's okay. Um, So I don't want to speak globally about this issue, but I do know that there is a specific iteration of this that I see frequently, and that is when 
Um, you've given me a gift out of benevolence or kindness or love, and now I feel obligated to repay you with what feels like a cosmically weighted or balanced gift. Now it's become an expectation or a script. And I think that's when gift giving really, for me, kind of violates the, the purpose of gift giving in the first place, when we're trading balance back and forth. I assume there's like three tiers of this. There's the people where gift giving is like a psychological profiler head game where they just like get something that cuts you to the core where it's almost too good of a gift mm-hmm. or at least that's how I register it because I am not have the skill of those people. There's sort of the basal obligation but I still want to get you what you want. So what do you want? You ask for it. I don't want to give you money. I go get the thing you want. I give it to you. Mm-hmm. We've done it. Yeah. Uh, I, I still ensured it is something you want definitively, though, and I have no aspect of surprise. And then there's my grandfather, who is like, here is a Bob Evans gift card. Right. Um, yeah. And I I expect money from you, and right. it is a financial exchange, and we not. This is a script. The problem is when you're giving between tiers. Yep. That's that is right. my conception of it. Yep. Like, giving between tiers, that's the difficult one. If you're the money guy, and you're like, here's your Bob Evans gift card, you're just like... Here's your son that you didn't know you had. And you just like that is that is jarring. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, all right. Last question. Chris Keener asks, what's the first game you played that really hooked you on gaming as a hobby? How old were you? And do you think it would still be a good hook for someone, yourself or others today? The example here is he played board games with his parents as a kid, but magic was the thing that hooked him. Uh, absolutely hated board games as a kid. Um, could never get to play RPGs. The game that was like, oh, this could be good was probably like the first Delta Green game that I ran in Ross. So I was probably like 26, 27. Yeah. Okay. It was not the um, first game I played with actually, Ross. Actually, I kind of want to revoke my answer for that one question I did. Because uh, there's a lot of furries who are cool and that's fine, you know. But I thought of a better answer for that. Okay. Uh, Flat Earth Real. <laughs> oh. All right. That's a good one. Yeah. That's a real- so, you sorry hear that Kyrie first. Irving? Yeah, yeah. All right. Flat Earth Real. Uh, we need no more, more beers. Yeah. Spencer, what are you drinking? This is from Lift Bridge Brewing Company in Stillwater, Minnesota. Oh my God, it's a Stillwater. I'm, it's a different thing. Every, uh, it's, a, it's a place. It's everyone a place. calmed. Put the hatchets away. <laughs> so uh, what was it called again? It's the Hop Dish IPA from Lift Bridge Brewing Company. It smells like an IPA. Yeah, he is yep. drinking it. Got sort of a Jamaican color scheme on the label. Yeah, green and yeah. yellow. Yeah. It's very earthy. Yeah. Um yeah, it's fine. Um it's a three. It's a, a Tal Shia. Yeah. yeah. Well, it is the average, as Ross pointed out. Yeah. <laughs> it's it, it look, it's fine. Um it tastes like an IPA, really light on the front, dies on the back. In the middle, there are hops. Cool, great. <laughs> Indeed. It was um, a whole story. Yeah. Hey, we're into Armchair Director, which was also tied. It was a three-way tie this for your week number one for number ones. My yeah. God. Um, so Maddie has asked, so with movies like Mandy and Twisted Pear in limited cinema releases right now, what makes so bad they're good movies gain a cult following? And how are some bad movies just bad? Let me say this. I- I'm really excited about Mandy. It's on Amazon Prime. Eh. And I've thought about watching it. Was it not great? It's definitely worth watching. It's definitely worth watching, but it's um, the a yeah. art house director mm-hmm. made a very smart marketing decision. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And he, got Nick and he got Nick Cage to act fucking crazy, <laughs> right? To get you to watch a weird art house film. Yeah. yeah, that is also a weird grindhouse film. 
but it is first and foremost a weird art house film. I'm interested in it. Like I, yeah, like, no, much like Beyond the Black Rainbow was just a weird art house. Yeah, film. yeah. It's he ha- Panos has a thing, and he he's just doing it as hard as he can. Right. Yeah. So, um, what makes them gain a cult following, though? For me, it's always been like two things. So one is, I think that it's the nod. Right. It, it is. In many of these instances, I think it is a recognition at some point in the film by the cast, by the director, um, by the style, that we're in on the bit. Like, I understand. Oh, man, I couldn't disagree more. Oh, no, no, no. I think there needs... I think there needs to be some... Because for me, the problem with going hard in the paint and never never accepting that, um, it's possible this is bad. Uh, I, I think what you end up with is Tommy Wiseau without anyone else in the fucking room, and I think that the other people in the room are. As oh, so important. you you thought that the the begrudging ironic ironic admission of the room's uh, terribleness came from the performances of the other actors that yeah. weren't Tommy Wiseau? Right. That's an interesting reading of that. Mm. Yeah. 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 I don't. Yeah. If it's just Tommy Wiseau, that's unwatchable. <laughs> if it's Tommy Wiseau's hard, no, hard disagree. Well, yeah, obvi- obviously, <laughs> if it's Tommy Wiseau's earnest appraisal of what he thinks he's doing in that movie, juxtaposed against all of these other people who are legitimately trying to be actors for the most part, but who are also giving forth the effort of people who know they're trying to be actors, and this is barely acting that I think makes the room so compelling in many ways. Um, and so there has to be, I think, at, at some level, uh, a semi-obvious recognition that you're in on the bit. I think the other thing there is you have to have some compelling cast member. Uh, and I don't just mean like Nick Cage, but, you know, I think about like uh, Bruce Campbell, right? If Bruce Campbell isn't so oddly compelling after Evil Dead and all of that, like, is it really all that interesting to us 30 or 40 years later? I'm not sure. Bruce Campbell embraces mythic, iconic cult status leans into it hard and i think that fuels evil dead and the like so those are two things to me that are very important here um well for me a cult classic you can kind of divide in one or two categories one is the room the basically the outsider artist who has no idea what they're doing and they have some vision and they they try to execute it and Mm -hmm. the result is you know beyond any standards of art because Mm -hmm. it's just this weird unique vision uh, the other one is done by people who know what they're doing and they're trying to do something genuinely weird, um, like the Rocky Horror Picture Show, um, you know, things like. Uh, yeah, no one can yeah. say Mandy is not an accomplished yeah. film. So that, yeah, Mandy would be the other. Ver- yeah, yeah. That, that's it. So those are the two kind of schools of them. So, yeah, um, no, I think that's an interesting dichotomy. Yeah. yeah. Caleb? Uh, for me, uh, I think I'm sort of coming at it from the same direction, but the opposite direction. You need right. someone who's in on the bit. I need someone who's out of the bit. Right. Uh, the cult uh, nature of something needs to be, uh, it, at, at least at some point, um, charmingly genuine. Uh, and I know authenticity is somewhat of a sham, and we talked about that before. But like, um, I think Mandy works not only because it's a technically accomplished film, even though it is boring at points. But it's because, visually very but, compelling. Visually very compelling, but but because it, it might be a cult classic because Nick Cage is a man who knows no shame like what would it be what would it be to be a man without shame he commits yeah he commits to everything yeah. to to a laughable comical degree and then you'll watch an interview with him and be like yeah i was really channeling this french impressionist director of the silent era and you're like <laughs> and then you watch you're like holy shit he was like and you're just like What's going on with Nick Cage? Like, and you can't put your finger out, and it's sort of intriguingly. Well, that's. I mean, that should be art, right? Like, it should be a little bit of thought, thought compelling. Like, um, so 
yeah, I mean, I don't think Mandy works in ways in that it's like blazingly soul, and I'm not sure if I'm supposed to have like sympathy for this weird witch character. And I don't know why there are Cenobite bikers, and there's so much confusing about it. But, I mean, I think it works specifically on the Nick Cage performance. Uh, whereas, I, otherwise, I think Panis's other work, like Beyond the Black Rainbow, is just like, this is very technically accomplished. You are an artist skilled at his craft. But holy balls, is this just weird what you're going for? And I think it falls into that realm as well. But I, I do think cult has to be, at some point, um, if we're talking about so bad it's good, like Maddie's question, because I, I don't, I don't regard Rocky Horror Picture as so bad it's good. I, ro- I regard Rocky Horror Picture as like so good, people thought it was bad. Um, but um, well, I think it's the key concept here is dissonance. Yeah, like there's something mm-hmm. in a cult classic that is dissonant and causes you to be uncomfortable right. in ways that you didn't really think about. Like Rocky Horror Picture Show is about sexuality. You're you're uncomfortable about that, especially mm-hmm. back when mm-hmm. it was first made. Mm-hmm. Um, the room is makes you uncomfortable in a variety. Jodorowsky's yeah. El Topo or something. Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a Western movie during the height of Westerns in which they fire mind bullets at each other. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think it's dissonance more than anything. Like Hollywood movies are about residents, like trying to make you feel comfortable and feel better about yourself because you have the satisfying narrative arc. Mm-hmm. You know, Joseph Campbell, Hero of a Thousand Faces. This one is like, no, we're going to make, we're going to, uh, uh, put some feedback in the microphone. It's going to be fucking bad. And it's going to make you think about things because fuck you, uh, question your life. See, that's why I don't think Mandy's going to make it because like, there's some discordant images in it, but like, it's also kind of like Hollywood sentimental. Mm -hmm. Like, He's so in love with Nick Cage that, like, there are points when it's not the bathroom screaming scene, which goes on to the point of just Will Ferrell absurdity. But, <laughs> but other points where it's Hard like, I disagree. That's the best scene of the movie. No, I love it. No, that's why I love it. But there are other points where it's like you're watching the, you know, murder scenes or, or Nick Cage is going insane. And it's like this, like, Spielberg face loving slow mo. Look at this emotion on Nick Cage's face and feel this emotion too. It seems very Hollywood at points to me. Okay. Like, yeah. it, it's not as weirdly dis connected i mean the, yeah. the dream logic of the settings yeah isn't hollywood like how did they get there and this movie is not going to explain yeah why, ambiguity yeah. yeah why there is a giant bottomless pit in this trailer park like that's thomas the shit but there is some pot where it's like you know it's sort of manipulative in its camera work and in its mm-hmm. slickness and like yeah it might not have enough dissonance other than the fact that like Nick Cage as a human is something we're never going to yeah. be able to unpack it'll um, be it'll be really interesting to see if Mandy stands up 5 years from now yeah, yeah. like that's the like it, it, it i think it has the potential to be a cult classic but yeah are people going to really respond to it after a couple but years? i think it was marketed as a cult classic oh, yeah, 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 which might be the may that like cuz like I love snakes on a plane for sentimental reasons, but it is not a cult classic. Nope. And they attempted to be from right. moment one. Yeah. Like, yeah. You can't go try to make a cult classic, I don't think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. We got one beer left and we're on to drunk enough. We'll be right back. Caleb, what's this final beer? Uh, this is from North Loop Brewing Company. It's called the IPA Photo, F-O-T-O. It's got sort of a German impressionistic Dr. Caligari 
label. It's real great. It's yeah, it's kind of odd with some red on there in the black and white. So I want to give it a shot. Yeah. Yep. He's trying it. I'm I'm excited about it. I think more mo- uh, beer should be uh, influenced by the German expressionists. Mm. Especially IPAs. <laughs> I mean, Germans know expressionism and beer, so two great tastes go together. Yeah, uh, it's a three. It's an IPA. Yeah, oh, man, one of those days. Yeah, we hit some fours. We had we had yeah some we had points. some fours, and we had we had a great one earlier when we started things off. Yep. Yeah, yeah, the jury of our beers, which I hope you liked. Hey, we're into drunk enough, and uh, wanted to do something a little bit different today and recall from the past. We we talk a lot about education. We talk a lot about teaching. We talk a lot about the subjects that we studied, philosophy and rhetoric, even this this episode. Um, but I wanted to just take a few minutes and think critically about uh, uh, you know for people who have all spent a lot of time in classrooms, um, what of your your classroom history stands out to you as the most formative class you've ever taken, and why? Um, mm. And I think I think there's there's some openness here. You know, maybe it's the teacher professor, maybe it's the subject matter, maybe it's something you've read or an assignment. I don't know. But what's the thing that stands out to you as a capstone in your coursework in terms of forming? You know, you you. Uh, so for me, I I'm torn on this. I mm-hmm. mean, I could go back to like Miss Huss in first grade, and like I could go back to. You know, uh, Mr. Husky, Mr. Vreeland, who, mm-hmm. you know, convinced me to be an English teacher and writers, you know, conversely and, right. and all that kind of stuff. I go back to really bad classes, which taught me like what I didn't yeah. want to do as a teacher right. like, and, and negative capability there. I think sometimes, especially if you become an educator yourself in any way, shape or form, learning what night to do might be, you know, and why you don't do that might right. be even more valuable because you didn't have to make that mistake yourself or yeah. get trapped in it. But <laughs> Um, the one I've always got to go back to is going to be uh, uh, cultural studies with Dr. Burling. That class was the shit. Yeah. It was just fucking fantastic. I loved every part of it, other than the writing and the uh, copious reading and the, the insane curse course load that almost broke me. But when it didn't break me, I was thrilled to have gone through it, yeah. which is pretty great. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's part of the deal, too, right? That, that maybe the most formative class is also the one that kind of like hardens the rock a little bit, you mm-hmm. know, that like shapes the diamond. But from your perspective, like what was so formative about it? What are the things that you think you've taken out of that class? So it was very late in grad school. I was very disillusioned with grad school. I had learned at that point that grad school is largely about writing other people's books for no money. Uh, and you are scut work and all that kind of stuff. And But but Burling, far too much of a Marxist to do that, did not use a grad student to be his slave even one time mm-hmm. that I ever saw. But on the alternative turn... Um, when you wrote stuff in Burling's class, it was about cultural studies. Like, so you wrote a you know an analysis of country song lyrics, or you wrote about I wrote about comic books. And yeah, other, other people wrote about different. You wrote about stuff that was considered non-academic, precisely because it was non-academic. Right. And then um, you talk about, it, and then when you talk about it with Burling and and on the other people in the class, you had to for your own self-defense, and you had to because he demanded it it had to fucking matter. Mm-hmm. Like, it had to mean everything. And you know what? I, I don't necessarily live my life that way in which, like, your latest academic paper has to, like, you know, Move be yeah, in an English department, no less. Like, because we're not saving lives. It's not. But it's like, at that point in my education, after years of, you know, doing it, and at point where you realize that 
well, maybe this is just where my proclivities lie. Maybe I'm here this because I'm you know fundamentally unsuited to do anything else. Yeah, and this is just what I'm naturally good at, and it doesn't mean a damn. And yeah. I'm just here because you know this is the easiest path of least resistant. The the idea that he would treat it as what if you did it like your life depended on it? Like what if you got heated head up about it and mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. you know all in was uh was like honestly one of the most refreshing things. So I wrote a paper, I think it was something about how um, comic books are essentially the most postmodern art firm because they not only dis- deconstruct genre, they dis- deconstruct medium by you know bashing together text, onomatopoeia, and uh, acrostic poems and, and images that mm-hmm. they are uh, you know the the quintessential post-industrial art form because they are the you know the most postmodern of pieces. They are not the entirely separate art form of film. Um, and they, they exist in this bastardized, you know, ghettoized form that people will read anyway, objectively, according to the market. Because you always had to throw some materialism in there for Burling. And um, I did it. I thought it was the best paper I'd ever written. And he's like, oh, yeah, that's true. But, you know, sort of obvious. <laughs> and that was the critique. Right. And then at the end of it, I was just like, yeah, but he's like, yeah, but you spent too long trying to convince us of it. And you could have gone, you know, this more interesting direction to this more interesting. And he said, and ultimately, comic books are going to be dead to write about because it's something I'm going to be writing about soon. And by the time I get around to it, it's already dead. <laughs> and you're young and you should be on something cooler. And I'm like, like, cool, coolness matters mm-hmm. in academia? He's like, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, oh, fuck. Like, <laughs> damn. Like, just tore me apart. And I'm like, he hates me. It has to be brutal. And then some guy from California comes up there and talks about, like, the grand human experiment and how great the spirituality of Dave Egger's work is. And Burling literally said, you're going to have to get out of this class with that humanist <laughs> bullshit. And just... And the guy's like, well, I don't think that was very very polite. Like, goes out of rudeness thing. He's like, I don't have to be polite when you're that wrong. And just <laughs> eviscerates it. Now, as an educator, not a great way to go about convincing right. that man right. to change his mind. Like, yeah. just, just a brutal thing. But that's the thing. We were operating a level where there was skin in the game. Right. What if it wasn't just this exercise we did to get a degree? What if you all weren't here to just get, like, a, a, a diploma and a wife and two and a half kids and a dog named Spot and white pick offense? What if it all wasn't just, like, this weird credentialism for making a certain amount of money? What if you gave a shit? Mm-hmm. And what if you talked about it like you did? And he was just like... The sea breeze for the first time. It was like, oh my God. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, this man is being terribly rude to this Californian. Um, and I will remember it for the rest of my life. And I was mortified when I came up and I'd worked that hard on it. But it was like, what if you gave a damn about it? Like, what if you really got into it? Yeah. Like, there's a reason movies like Whiplash really speak to me. And it's right. because I took classes with Burling. It was like, yeah, but what if through hating him? you became something more mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. and I'm just like, Oh, that's the tragedy of it. Right. But I'm going to miss that old bastard until the day I die. He was great. And by great, I mean really hard to deal with, Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. you learned a lot. Yeah. Great. So that was it. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, similar. Ex- well, um, different teacher, obviously different teacher experience. Um, I could talk about a lot of different things. Um, I had a lot of very smart people tell me, you know, it's not enough just to say things well. At some point, you're going to have to generate or conjure some substance. You know, Troy Smith told me that at Drury. Gloria Galenas told me that at Missouri State. All of that stuff was, like, really formative. Um, and I could spend hours talking about my time with Don Parson and Robert Rowland and Scott Harris at the University of Kansas. And those are 
really and truly the things that matter the most to me. But there's this one moment I look back in my undergraduate career that probably is the moment which sets me on a path to, to where we're sitting right now in a media analysis and criticism class, Media 454. Ironic. Yes. Yeah. Um, uh, Dave Steinweg was the GA teaching that class at the time. He was finishing his PhD through like UCF or something. Um, <clears throat> Dave started a class by like showing us an episode of The Office. And he just said, I don't care about what we read. I don't care about just observe the thing. Tell me what it was like to encounter The Office. What stood out to you, right? Like no music. I mean, the interactions, the the pit, the pitter patter of the characters and all this stuff. And um, it was kind of weird. So afterwards, I kind of was like talking to him about it. I'm like, what's, what's going on here, man? And he was just like, I think it's important um, for us to recognize our occurrences, our encounters with everyday media and how that shapes our understanding of things. And we often don't critically think about this stuff. And I was like, that's really fucking cool. So for that class, I ended up writing a paper on hot fuzz and it's hot fuzz and the role of Marxism uh, and, and how, you know, hot fuzz really embraces like, you know, the problems of, mm-hmm. and I spent hours talking about that paper with Dave after I'd turned it in and he'd critiqued it and, you know, told me what was wrong and what was right and what he liked and what he hated. Um, and, you know, the contents of the paper notwithstanding, uh, w- what was really interesting to me is it was, I think it was like one of the first times I felt like something that I really cared about, which may or may not have been important to other people like hot fuzz media writ large. I could find a space where it was okay to be really nerdy and obsessed with that thing in a structured environment where people got paid to do that. Yeah, you you don't have to turn it off. Right. That's sort of a revelation. Like, yeah. what if this was an ethos by which you just examined everything? Right. What if it was not just something you did because someone assigned you right. a paper? What, what if it? What if? What if this wasn't just the outgrowth of me calling one of my nerdy friends after something and spending ten minutes geeking out? Yeah. What if there was a space where? Holy shit! It's a way of being. Right. Like, yeah. Right. And it, and where that that space wasn't just welcoming of this, but under the right circumstances would push you to be really good at it to be able to participate in that space. You don't just get to show up and go, "Oh man, I really like hot fuzz." You had to show up and go, oh man, I really had I really liked Hot Fuzz because, and if I really want to make it, I need to read these non-related pressing texts uh, and then and then find reasons to use that vocabulary to describe why I really liked Hot Fuzz. And the kind of constellation of interests that that moment brought together for me and that class brought together for me are probably where why I ended up where I ended up. And along that path, I had much more formative experiences with teachers who were much more brutal and shaped me as a writer, a thinker, a human, way more than Dave Steinweg did. But I'll tell you what, that class was the first time, it was like a watershed, you know what I mean? It was like, oh my God, wait, I I could take a whole path doing this. And, you know, a semester later, I was in grad school. um, And that, you know, that was the thing for me. And so... I don't know. It's it's kind of fun to look back on those things. And, and you know, it, it's hard for me not to look at that class as, you know, the, the 2007 version of what we do every time we sit down at this table. Yeah. And I think, well, yeah, but if I if I didn't really if I wasn't given some grace to fall in love with that act, um, would I be sitting here? And I don't think I would, you know. Yeah, like uh, Burling's midterm for that same class was um, he came in. We had no idea what we were writing about. It's like a two hour timed essay. Just, you know, brutal, break your wrist, writing it out. Right. He came in and said, um, he gave, he's like, we're going to the computer lab. We didn't know we we're doing that. So we go to the computer lab. And we go up there. He's like, and he pulls up the website Stuff White People Like, <laughs> which at that point in history had like 
20 entries. Mm-hmm. Like it was a brand new sensation like that was popping around. I hadn't even heard of it. Other people had just barely heard of it a single like about. And he's like, is this racist or not? And he just sits down and like starts reading on his computer. We're like, so are we arguing for or against? He's like, I don't know. Yeah. Is it racist or not? Yeah. He's like, can I ask what you think? He's like, I don't know what I think yet. I haven't read it yet. I just thought it was, I heard it was a thing. Sounds like it might be racist, might be progressive. Right. I'm like, so we're just, that's it. We're just supposed to write about it. Yeah. And then, like, that could, and again, educationally, maybe he had a hangover. Maybe he just wasn't <laughs> feeling it and he just pulled a random link. But at the same time, like, he was also like, you're grad students. Like, the purpose of criticism right. is to establish things that have no framework within a framework. Yeah. I don't want to hear what you have to say about Faulkner a right. hundred years down the line. This thing just came out. Yeah. What is this thing? Right. If you're critics, you should be able to do that. Yeah. And, and if Faulkner ha- matters, yeah. Then if then Faulkner use- matters, right. then this matters too. Right. Like if you have two hours to convince me how it matters, right. and I'm just like, yeah, yeah. No, that that's where it's at. That's why this stuff was cool. Like, right. and I sort of it wasn't like I never thought that. It's just I never put in the words and never remembered it until it was that right explicit. Yeah. Because at that point, you're just like. This many million dollars of loan debt and right. this many hours of classes down the drain, and you can't see the you can't see the forest for the trees. Well, yeah. and then it, at that point, it's no longer just kind of like an ambiguous dream of yours to find a space where there is, frankly, pressure yeah. to think about things like that, mm-hmm. like that. Uh, and then it's there, and you're like, okay, well, let's let's fucking go. I mean, put your shoulder into it. You yeah. know what I mean? So. Um, yeah, I don't know. I thought that would be kind of like a fun trip down memory lane to explore those things. Uh, it kind of, we did not coordinate about this before that. And yet we both arrived at, you know, I think if we have a thesis is that people had taught you that your, that your subject matter, no matter how, you know, tragically white, useless and academic, it may be in the realm of rhetoric in English. Cause we're not, you know, you know, finding a just new form of tapeworm or right. anything scientific. Right. Um, but no matter what it is, the person that teaches you that it goes beyond the classroom. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah. And that, and that that's a reason to be better at it. Yeah. You know what I mean? To think mm-hmm. more critically about it, to learn more. There's about blood it. in the game. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. Be good at it for reasons beyond just you want an A. Right. So uh, I hope that you've had a similar experience. And if not, I hope that you find one at some point, even if it's not in a classroom. And if you've been listening to this, uh, we can't tell you how much we appreciate your support, monetary or otherwise time is frankly enough and we thank you thank you thank you for giving us that um if however you are not a patron don't forget you can check us out on patreon where we've got a number of backer levels and you can get access to more content or if you're already a backer be sure to tell your friends about the best podcast they're probably not listening to the mix six hey if you're not following us on twitter check us out at the mix six you can find us on facebook we've got a group and a page you can mail us things you'll find that information in the facebook group and you can check us out on our website the six.com or on youtube once again thanks so much for your time your energy your effort and your resources we can't tell you how much we appreciate it i'm spencer i'm caleb and we'll see you next time